0: Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's Scripture and Sermon. Readers, just kind of two two rows. Uh, one in front, one on top. Scripture readers, go ahead. One in front, one on top there. We got your Bible. All right, so Scripture readers. We have all 16 here. This is, how, this is how it's going to work, scripture readers. I'm going to read the very first part, um, which is that, that first section on the first page. Um, and then um, and then you're going to begin. I'm going to cue you. I'm going to give you a cue. It's going to look like this, right? And you're just going to start reading out loud so everyone can hear you. And when you stop, when, we're, when you're done, just stop. Got it? You can't mess this up, I promise. All right. (laughs) All right. Let's say, famous last words. Uh, Let's. As we're preparing to hear uh, a word from scripture, um, we're going to read this morning. We've been talking over these four, talking these four weeks in August, about where God makes a home with us, where God makes a home. And today, we're going to talk about the tabernacle, the tent, the great tent of God. But the, the description of the tent is super long. So in order to get it all in, we're going to read it all together. So let's sing a prayer for illumination. Let's sing, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Sing that again. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and the light unto my hand. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to take for me an offering from all those whose hearts prompt them to give, for you shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering you shall receive from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins." skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones for, uh, and gems to be set in the ephod and for the breastpiece, And have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you. And concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. 8- Please, copper way,
1: flasks. Everyone talk at the same time.
0: Go read your passage. <laughs> people said, amen, amen, you may go back to your seats, wow, that was even better than I imagined it when I designed that exercise, that was awesome, that was awesome, the question that we are asking these four Sundays of August is where does God live, right? And I hope that question makes you think, because theologically we know that God is everywhere. God's presence is all around us. But the scriptures also tell us a very particular story about a God who lives in specific places. And those places tell us about who God is. Last week we said God is from where? the wilderness right this this great beautiful austere rugged wilderness of seir god's love for us was formed in that rugged wilderness space but our story says that god does not stay in the wilderness god makes a big decision that requires god to move to a new home how many of you have ever made a decision that required you to move away from home Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, have you ever made a decision? And tell each other about it just for like two minutes. What decision did you make that caused you to move All right, enough, enough already. Put your yapping. All right, thank your neighbor, say thank you, neighbor. All right, so what decision prompted God to move? What prompted God to move out of the wilderness? Well, God decided to free us, right? So in Exodus, God frees our ancestors from the clutches of the most powerful tyrants in the world. But that decision that God makes, like all major decisions, has long-term consequences. God's life becomes enmeshed with ours again because it turns out we stink at living on our own. Almost immediately, God realizes, I'm going to have to stay with these people as long as they need me. This means God has to have a home with us. If God's going to live with us, God has to have a home. So what kind of home does God have after living so long in the wilderness? We'll get to that in just a minute. Let's talk about our side of this relationship with God first. Can we talk about the reason why God moves in with our ancestors after they are freed from the Egyptians? If you read Exodus, and I encourage you to go back and read Exodus again, it's a marvelous book. The stories from Exodus 15 and beyond are amazing. It's like looking at ourselves in the mirror. Our ancestors are given this extraordinary gift, right? They are liberated by God in this marvelous turn of events. They're now living on their own. They are free to make their own choices every day of their lives. They're free to set their own priorities. How do they exercise their freedom? They complain right? That's what they do. They blame their leaders for every single misfortune that falls on them. They complain and they moan and they groan and they say, oh, things were so much better back in the olden days. At least then our stomachs were full. We still do it. All of us enjoy an extraordinary kind of freedom. We have an extraordinary life. But instead of giving thanks every day for all of the good things that we have, we dwell on everything that's wrong, every little thing. We focus on what we do not have. But God puts up with us. Even in our childish immaturity, God loves us. And because God loves us, God does not leave us to our worst impulses and inclinations. God stays with us on our journey. God stays with us as we move gradually to freedom. This journey in Exodus, go back, read it again. This journey is not just a geographic journey from one place to another. It's more than that. It doesn't take 40 years to walk From the Red Sea to Canaan. The journey that God joins us on is not a geographic journey at all. What kind of journey is Exodus? It's the journey of growing up. It's a journey toward the most elusive of human virtues, responsibility. It's a journey from dependence to independence to interdependence. It's the journey that a whole people makes from being no people to being the beloved people of God who exercise love and care for each other. The journey of Exodus is the journey from immaturity to maturity. It's a spiritual journey. And it's one that you are taking to. Another question for you, how many of you have ever had to grow up? Just a few of you? How long does it take? Yeah, at least 40 years, right? At least. The truth of our life is that in order to become a human being... Right? And I say become a human being. In order to become a coherent people with a collective identity, we have to grow up. And growing up takes time. But scripture also says that we do not grow up on our own. God is with us on the way. Our ancestors who came out of Egypt needed God because they discovered They discovered the hard way that you cannot live in slavery one day and pop out into freedom the next day and think you're going to be just fine. They had to unlearn the old ways of doing things, let go of the old mind. They had to relearn who they are again as free people. Of course they discovered that with freedom comes responsibility. It is hard to be free. It's hard when you can choose anything that you want to choose what is good. It's hard when you can choose how you want to treat other people, to choose love. Learning that takes time. You make mistakes and mistakes and mistakes again, and yet God is right there with you. What does that mean, right? What does it mean to say, God, is with me as I grow up. The first thing I think it means is that God gives you a set of rules for growing up. Now, I know lots of us get queasy when we start talking about God and rules. There are a lot of faith communities where rules are used to punish or demean or denigrate people. We all hate that part of religion. And yet I ask you, have you ever met a mature human being who doesn't have some kind of internalized set of rules to guide her actions? Wise and strong and mature people hold on to certain deep truths, and those truths tell them, do this, but not that. So the Israelites, when they are just escaping, when they are awakening into their freedom, but they're finding themselves morally, spiritually lost, they get 10 great rules from God. What are they? Love God. Don't worship something that's not worth worshiping. Don't take this precious life for granted. That's don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath so that every week you've got time for rest and delight. Honor your elders. Don't hurt people. Be faithful in your relationships with others. Don't take other people's stuff. Tell the truth. And only want what you have. Right? That's not a bad list. Good rules can be fantastic things for our growing up. Think of rules, good rules, as maps to follow in the wilderness. Maps that show you where the water is and where the food can be found. They show you how to keep yourself healthy and safe. They also show you how to make vital, strong relationships with the people around you we got to have rules because as our ancestors learned, when we are free, our minds are capable of thinking up all kinds of things to do and many of those are not good for human flourishing. You should know something else about the God who gives you rules. God stays with you when you break them. I don't say if. God stays with you when you break them. God keeps holding them in front of you, keeps offering them to you, keeps making sure you don't lose track of the rules because eventually the best rules, they move from outside to in. God knows that God's rules will eventually bear fruit in the form of virtue in our personal lives and peace and justice in our communal life. And that fruit will be so delicious to the taste that we'll hunger for those rules as though they are something intrinsically good and not ever remember that they came from outside of us or felt like a constraint. So beyond this set of rules, what else does it mean that God journeys with you as you grow up? I think the story of Exodus tells us that God's presence with us gives us self-belief. God does not give up on us midway through the journey out of frustration, although there was ample reason to. God lives with us. And in spite of all of our missteps, God stays with us, God abides with us. The reason this is so important is that we don't always believe that we can or will grow up. We're not sure we'll make it the whole way. Maybe the worst trick that our minds ever play on us is when they say, I can't do that. I'll always make this same mistake. I'll always be a disappointment. God's presence with you, God's affirmation and love for you, refuses to let your own worst thoughts about yourself define the journey and the destination of your life. God's mercies for you, Scripture says, are brand new every morning that you wake up. Whatever you screwed up yesterday is gone. It is forgiven. You at your heart are a beloved child of God in your life, in your spirit. You are a free being with your freedom. God says, love yourself and love others as best as you can this day. God's daily, unfailing, abiding, merciful, affirming presence in our lives gives so many of us strength, the strength that we need to carry on this long and bumpy and winding and circuitous journey to become kind and compassionate and courageous grown-up human beings. One of my favorite recordings from StoryCorps. How many of you ever listen to StoryCorps? Yeah, great, great audio diaries. One of my favorite recordings is a conversation between a man and his former math teacher. In high school, the young man who's in the middle on the left and on the right, his name is Bob. In high school, this young man started dating his math teacher's daughter. That's dangerous. (laughs) Later on in high school, though, Bob lost his way. He started drinking and got into drugs, and he was kicked out of his own home. He ended up homeless. He turned to robbery. He was convicted of crimes and spent six years in a Michigan prison. But that is not where the story ends. Bob gets released, and he gets back on his feet, and he goes to college. And then he goes to, of all places, law school. He's now a practicing attorney in the state of Michigan. And Bob records his StoryCorps interview with a person he credits as saving his life, who is his ex-girlfriend's dad, his high school math teacher, whose name is Mike. Mike and his wife established a connection with Bob when he was dating their daughter, but that connection never stopped. They recall going out in the middle of the night when Bob was homeless to try to find him to keep him safe and warm in the Michigan cold. When Bob went to prison upstate, Mike and his wife would drive five hours each way every single month of those six years to visit with him. And Bob says, your visits, he says to Mike, your visits kept me from sinking fully into prison. They were like coming up out of the bottomless pit. When Bob was released from prison, Mike helped him figure out how to live on his own, how to make choices on his own, how to use his newfound freedom. They tell a funny story about the day that Bob was released. They all went to get food at Denny's and Bob looked at the menu and he was paralyzed. Some of us are also paralyzed at the menu of Denny's, right? But he said, I was so unused to making my own decisions. I had no idea what to say. Bob said the new freedom felt like the world was coming at me, rushing like a freight train. And Mike quickly says to him in response, You don't have to experience that freight train all by yourself. There are people around you who become like a shock absorber. Bob said, you helped me learn that I'm okay. You helped me learn that I can join the humans. The love that Mike shows for Bob is just an echo of the love that God has for each of you. God walks with you and stays with you. God absorbs the shocks of your failures and your self-loathing. And God points you always, always in the right direction until after a while, 40 years, give or take, you find that you too are grown up. Before I finish, I want to talk briefly about the home that God has with us, as God lives with us, as we are in this growing up experience. It's called the tabernacle. There it is. We saw that picture earlier. I assume someone actually made this. I think it's a real thing. There are actually quite a few pictures of the tabernacle online. Apparently, there are companies that will come out and make one of these for you if you want. And you can make them pretty well because in the Bible, there are very exact specifications about how you are to build this tabernacle. If any of you have ever read the Bible straight through or tried to, this very moment in the Bible is the point that you get to when you say to no one in particular, holy Moses, this stuff is boring. (laughs) Exodus goes on and on about the details of this tent cubits of this and yarn colors and lampstands and it's awful. (laughs) This is the home that we made for God. In the back of the tent was the Ark of the Covenant, the rules that God gave us to live by. And it was all made to be portable, to go with us as we journeyed. And honestly, It's not that much to look at, is it? A few years ago, I went back to my own childhood home where I lived as a two through nine-year-old in North Carolina. It was not at all how I remembered it. The trees had grown up a lot more and the color was different. It felt strange and unfamiliar. But of course, as I reflected on that home later, It wasn't the house itself that mattered to me. It was all the things that happened in it. The patterns of life that were shaped in that place. The rules, the forgiveness, the laughter, and the love. All of the growing up that happened there. It's not about the building. It's about having a place for the presence. Biblical scholars have wondered over the years if this tent was always meant to be temporary. Why does the scripture bore us with the color of the yarn or the design of the lampstand or what kind of wood the frame is made of? Why all of the details? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs offers the best reason that I have heard. He said, the making of the tent in Exodus takes hundreds of verses, more than 10 times as long as the 34 verses it takes God in Genesis to create the whole world. (laughs) Why? Then he says, it's not difficult for our Creator to make a home for humanity. What is difficult is for human beings in our finitude and vulnerability to make a home for God. Of course, we need the detail. It's hard for us to make a home for God. We spend so much time thinking we can do it on our own, this growing up, but we don't have to, and we shouldn't. The God who gives us our freedom as a gift abides with us in patient love. Until we grow up and we're able to exercise our freedom for the purpose of love. All you have to do is make space. Let the people say, Amen.